Hello and welcome to NewsHour. It's coming to you live from the BBC World Service in London. I'm Tim Franks. Our top story this hour, in Syria, the month-long ceasefire, which was due to become a five-hour cessation, becomes altogether non-existent. More on that in just a moment. We'll also have a rare insight into the Middle East's other major war in Yemen with a Yemeni government minister. And... You back on the life of Lewis Gilbert, one of British British cinema's most distinguished directors. Uh, three Bond movies among his opus. That's uh, in 15 minutes. Today was supposed to have been, if not a fresh start for Syria, at least a moment when some of the most beleaguered people in the most battered places could exhale, have a moment of respite. The United Nations Security Council resolution of Saturday calling for a 30-day ceasefire already appears a distant dream. What was instead pencilled in for today was the Russian proposal for a five-hour cessation of hostilities to allow aid in and civilians out of neighbourhoods such as eastern Ghouta, just outside Damascus. That slender construct, the five-hour window, collapsed quickly, figurative rubble amid the real destruction and bloodshed. Rebel forces traded blame with the government and its allies for the failure. On yesterday's programme, we heard from Mwayad, a 29-year-old father of two living in eastern Ghouta, He's chronicled his thoughts for us again today. This is uh, maybe the first day of uh, the Russian uh, truth. I'm taking my mother and my uh, brother-wife to their home to, so they can change their clothes and... Uh, Checking on the house. Uh, because they are have been living with us in the basement for a week. I hope uh, we go and return to the basement in safety. Because... Uh, yeah. You heard? That's what I'm talking about. What a truth. Oh my God. There's uh, more than two uh, airplanes, maybe three, in the sky. That was just an air raid uh, in front of uh, where I live in the basement. Maybe you still hear it right now? It's very terrifying. I'm right now trying to sleep, but I'm so afraid because uh, you heard the other day how uh, the chemical uh, weapon used on Eastern Ghouta and I'm afraid to, to they use it again while we sleep. I'm afraid for my children. I really am afraid. Wyatt speaking from Eastern Ghouta. 
Linda Tom talks on behalf of the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Syria. She told our earlier edition of News Hour that aid convoys had been ready to roll, but had not received the security guarantees needed to be able to deliver to those trapped in eastern Ghouta. We are working towards delivering assistance to Iskuta here in Syria. Um, humanitarian partners uh, have uh, prepared, you know, their supplies. The trucks are ready, and as soon as we have that opening, you know, we're ready to go in. Sadly, in Syria, we need all parties in order to be able to agree for us to be able to move. So uh, we call on all parties to the conflict to allow us to have sustained and unimpeded and unconditional access to people in need. We haven't had that. The BBC's Middle East correspondent Martin Patience is following developments from Beirut. What does he make of today's events? I think what it does is it demonstrates how tense it is on the ground and how difficult it is to actually piece together the picture. What we understand, according to one UK monitoring group, is that the Syrian government carried out airstrikes. We saw footage of that. That tallies with what residents in eastern Ghouta told us uh, those airstrikes were carried out on two towns. There was also an allegation from the Syrian government that rebels fired mortars uh, in the direction of the location of a humanitarian uh, corridor where civilians were supposed to be allowed to leave Eastern Gota into government-controlled areas. The rebels have denied that. But clearly, this ceasefire didn't last long. It broke down pretty quickly. And the latest casualty figures we have are that at least two people died from the bombardment in Eastern Gota today. Do you think that's it then, or do you think they will try and go again tomorrow with this five-hour pause? I think they will try again. I mean, the story of Syria in terms of ceasefires is one side declares it and then it breaks down very quickly. We had that extraordinary effort over the weekend by the United Nations Security Council. It was supposedly signed off. But then it collapsed within days. And then we had this extraordinary announcement by Russia basically swatting aside the international community, saying, suggesting you can't get a deal done. We'll do it. Five-hour humanitarian pause. But that hasn't worked either. And I think what it graphically illustrates is the complete lack of trust in Syria between all the sides involved. It's incredibly difficult to piece together a ceasefire even for five hours. How far do you think the problems of today go back to some of the language of Saturday then, of that UN Security Council resolution and the fact that it was calling for a a 30-day ceasefire, in quotes, without delay? But without delay, I, I guess, some people might think is a bit vague. Well, critics will say you could drive a bus through it, and it was designed that way. The only way that the international community could have a consensus was by being vague. So when it actually comes to the details of the resolution, all parties on the ground can argue that they're either adhering to it or they're not adhering to it. I mean, for example, we we, we couldn't agree upon, the international community couldn't agree upon a start time. They couldn't even agree what parties were supposed to adhere to this ceasefire. So I don't think it's a huge surprise that it's collapsed so quickly because the international community simply doesn't have a consensus on what to do on Syria. uh, And therefore, this resolution was a reflection of that. And Middle East correspondent Martin Patience in Beirut.
Earlier this month, allegations first emerged of those in the aid sector involved in humanitarian work in some of the neediest places in the world sexually exploiting local residents. Now the allegations have spread to Syria. Two aid agencies warned about the abuse in 2015, but a United Nations report published last year found that aid is still being exchanged for sex in the south of the country. The BBC's James Landale has the story. In recent weeks, we've learnt a lot about the sexual exploitation of women within aid agencies, and we're now hearing that it's also taking place further down the chain of command. In 2015, an aid worker called Daniel Spencer heard from some Syrian women in a Jordanian refugee camp that aid was being traded for sex in southern Syria. The international aid agencies can't get get in there because it's too dangerous. So they use third parties to deliver aid. And the women told her that men from these so-called local councils were offering women extra bags of grain in return for sex or denying them any if they refused. Now, Ms Spencer told me that the exploitation is so widespread that some Syrian women refused to go to distribution centres because people would assume they'd offered their bodies for aid. They were withholding the aid that had been delivered and then using these women for sex. This was a range of women. There were women of different ages in the group. Some had experienced it themselves. Some were very distraught. I remember one woman crying in the room. She was very upset. You know, women and girls need to be protected when they are trying to receive food and soap and basic items to live. The last thing you need is a man who you're supposed to trust and be supposed to receive aid from then asking you to have sex with him and withholding that aid from you. So, Ms Spencer reported all this at a key meeting of UN agencies and international charities hosted by the UN Population Fund in the Jordanian capital, Amman, on the 15th of July 2015. And another agency, the International Rescue Committee, had heard the same stories from a survey it had conducted independently in the region. But that was three years ago, and a recent report by the UN Population Fund, entitled Voices from Syria 2018, has confirmed it's still happening. Ms Spencer claims the aid sector is turning a blind eye to ensure that some aid still gets into southern Syria. Sexual exploitation and abuse of women and girls has been ignored. It's been known about and it's been ignored for seven years. This war is seven years old. The UN and the the system, as it currently stands, have chosen for women's bodies to be sacrificed. Somewhere there has been a decision made that it is okay for women's bodies to continue to be used, abused, violated, in order for aid to be delivered to a larger group of people. We put these claims to various UN agencies and international charities. Both CARE and the IRC confirmed that they had raised concerns in 2015, but none of the cases involved their partners. Both organisations said they had taken further action to protect against this kind of abuse. But other agencies that got back to us said that they had a zero tolerance of sexual exploitation, but said they were not aware of any cases of abuse by their own partner organisations in the region. 
James Lander reporting. The UN Refugee Agency described the allegations as incomplete, fragmented and unsubstantiated. Andrei Mahacic, the spokesman for the UN Refugee Agency, however, did acknowledge there was a chance of sexual exploitation in times of disaster or war, and he underlined that any such incident would be unacceptable. It is important to understand that the, in any aid emergency that there is a risk of sexual abuse and sexual exploitation. To abuse and exploit somebody who is in need of assistance is despicable, it is utterly dehumanizing, and it is uh, something that we unreservedly condemn. There's more on uh, this story, uh, this BBC investigation on the BBC News website, bbc.com forward slash news. And also uh, talking about things on the website, uh, do hunt out the BBC News Hour clips page. It's our sort of gallery of greatest hits. And uh, there are some fine examples of radio there, uh, which you can download and enjoy. Coming up on this programme, in Cuba, domestic violence has long been an issue kept behind closed doors. Now, a TV soap is trying to throw those doors open. Behind all the creative production process, they are also receiving very important advice from researchers into issues of violence. I think that has lent the series a degree of legitimacy and credibility to the point that the audience is thinking, this could be my neighbourhood happening to someone I know. In that sense, it was real, not fiction. That story coming up in uh, about 20 minutes. Now, let me uh, remind you of the latest news headlines once I manage to get them up on my uh, computer screen, such is the way these things work. A German court has ruled that cities can ban more polluting diesel vehicles to ensure better air quality. We'll look at that in 10 minutes. And a temporary ceasefire in a suburb of the Syrian capital Damascus has failed to hold. This is News Hour, live from the BBC in London. You live twice, or so it seems. One life for the British film director Lewis Gilbert has died at the age of 97, and uh, in his long career he produced a string of hits, including three Bond movies. You heard the theme tune from uh, the first of them. You Only Live Twice. That was back in 1967, the fifth Bond film. And Lewis Gilbert spoke to the BBC about the experience at the time. They've been wonderful. They've let me come in with any ideas that I, you know, that I thought would improve the Bond. And uh, there's been no friction at all. They haven't interfered with the, what I regard as the directorial part of the picture. I've made 25 films and I've never been on a film where this doesn't ever come up. If I said today, look, I want... 5,000 people flown in from Tokyo, I'm sure they'd be flown in, you know. (laughs) Well, that was back in 1967. In 1989, he brought out another uh, big hit. It was called Shirley Valentine, and the Scottish actor Tom Conti starred in that. He spoke to me just before we came on air. Lewis was a a giant, really, in, in the movie business. He did something like, what, 40-something movies, which that's a lot of movies. And he did, he did everything from, you know, human interest type stuff to um, James Bond. Um, he, he made Reach for the Sky, which was a, a, a huge um, movie. Um, Sink the Bismarck, he made war movies. It, it was absolutely extraordinary, his choice of different subjects. Do you think and, there was something particularly 
British about him, though. I mean, you're right. He he did range across a a, a whole lot of genres in, yeah. in some ways. But yeah. was there was there something quintessentially British about him? Very, very much so. He was a very self-effacing man. He was a very quiet man. I'm sure he'd you know in negotiation he'd be a tough man. But certainly on on the set he was he was very contained, very very easy not at all flustered or frightened. And a lot of directors, you know, are quite scared um, when they come to work in the morning. You see the whites of their eyes, you know, but not Lewis. And everything is terribly easy. And and you, you'd go onto the set and he'd say, okay, well, let's just have a have a look at this. Why don't you come in there? And then you come in here. And so you do the scene. And he says, yeah, all right. Well, um, how about if you go over there? And you might say, well, over there would mean such and such. What I, why don't I go around behind her? And he'd say, think for a moment, say, yeah, yeah, that'll work. Yeah, that'd be all right. Yeah, okay. Right, go and have a cup of tea and uh, I will get it lit. <laughs> so it was an understated style. I, I yeah. wonder whether, I mean, a lot of his films that I can think of were very entertaining. They weren't sort of, in that sense, um, difficult or challenging movies. But did they tell us something about the state of Britain, the state of, of modern life. I mean, when I think about the movie that you were involved in, Shirley Valentine, that was about, in a way, a, a middle-aged woman's sexual liberation. Well, yes, it, it, but, but it, it was also about the fact that people forget to whom it is they're married. Uh, she's forgotten that he was once the handsome, dashing young lad that she fell in love with, and, and he's also forgotten who she was. The pretty girl that he fancied, and and it was sort of saying, try to remember who it was you met, and that's the thing that people don't do, but a lot of people did it after that movie because he he made it in such a way that it completely drew you in to the life of this girl, who had really done a very brave thing. It was about courage too, the courage of Shirley to just up sticks and and go on this holiday. And then, in fact, stay and think, well, this is better fun. My daughter doesn't treat me terribly nicely. He doesn't treat me at all well. But here's this chap that's quite fun, and I'll stay. He had a long career, and, and as you say, he, he made some very successful movies. There were some who described his style as unfashionable. Is that fair enough, or do you think it's, it's actually a, a bit harsh? Fashionable in movies is usually not a good thing. The best thing you can do in the movie business is tell the story well. Forget fashion, forget trends, tell the story well. And all the great directors, Clint Eastwood, um, Woody Allen, um, Spielberg and Ridley, they just tell the story. And if you do that, you'll be a great director. Sage advice from Tom Conti, the Scottish actor, paying tribute to the British film director, Lewis Gilbert, who's died at the age of 97. How do you dispose of the word of God? In Islam, the Quran is the holy book, the embodiment of the divine revelation. But what should happen when a copy of that Quran has grown old or damaged? In Pakistan, some have been accused of blasphemy for treating old copies disrespectfully. One project in the western city of Quetta has devoted itself to trying to solve the problem. Sukunta Kamani has been to take a look. I'm walking up a mountain on the outskirts of Quetta. It's called Jabal-e-Nur, or Mountain of Light. And underneath me are buried 
perhaps millions of old damaged Qurans. Muslims in Pakistan believe you can't throw away old or damaged copies of the holy book. So they're brought here from around the country and buried in tunnels dug deep into the mountain. Abdul Rashid Lari, who's helped run the project for the last 25 years, shows me along one of the tunnels. It's lined with sacks, each containing around 8 to 10 Qurans. Most of the tunnels are completely full. You can't even walk along them. In total, they're around two miles long. It was Abdul Rashid Lari's brother who first set the project up. My older brother loved Qurans. He used to collect them from gutters and put them into his car. Some of his friends joined him, and then, with God's grace, all this was established. He tells me they initially used to bury the Qurans in an empty plot of land, but they didn't like the idea of people walking over them. We believe the Qur'an is the word of God and so should be treated with great honour. But if anyone sends us a Bible, we will look after that too. Small trucks bring new material each day. Outside the tunnels is a huge pile of old Qur'ans and scraps from newspapers containing holy verses. Wearing a mask to protect himself from the dust, it's Mulvi Abdul Qadus's job to sift through it all. Some books are only a bit damaged, so we repair them and give them away. But when pages are torn, we bury them in the tunnels. To make space for the material they keep receiving, new tunnels are constantly being dug. It's back-breaking work. But Muhammad Zay, a thin middle-aged labourer, says he draws strength from his holy purpose. To dig a tunnel of 200 feet, it takes four or five months. Some days we only dig around six inches, because the rocks are very hard. In Pakistan, disposing of the Quran is a sensitive subject. People have been lynched for not treating it respectfully. The project here is calling for anyone in the country with a damaged copy of the Quran to send it to them. Secunda Kamani with the people trying to look after old Qurans in Quetta in Pakistan. You're listening to the BBC World Service and News Hour, and we've got plenty more to come in the next 30 minutes. Stay with us if you can. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, Whatever the time of day, there is one place to go if you want to know what's going on in the world. The Global News Podcast. I'm Jackie Leonard and I'm one of the presenters. The great thing is, we make new editions of our podcast seven days a week, bringing you unrivaled reporting and analysis from our correspondents around the world. You may be one of the many who listen already. Hello. And if you're not, do join us and see what you've been missing. Search for Global News wherever you get your podcasts. That's Global News from the BBC World Service. Next on NewsHour, a minister from Yemen makes the case for hope in his war-ravaged country. First, our daily look at business news and a court ruling in Germany could see a major change to road traffic across Europe. The federal administrative administrative 
I'll try and say that again with my false teeth in. The Federal Administrative Court in Leipzig has ruled that two cities can ban older diesel vehicles from areas worst affected by pollution. The German Minister for Environment and Transport, Barbara Hendricks, said that the judgment did not mean bans would come in straight away. That does not mean that bans will be put in place overnight. My goal is and remains that bans never need to be implemented because we can manage to clean the air through other means. Ugo Tadai is a lawyer for the international environmental group Client Earth, which brought the case. Diesel vehicles are a main source of pollution in cities all across Europe. It is estimated that more than 70,000 premature deaths are related to emissions from diesel vehicles. So it's time to, to have cleaner vehicles in our cities. These two cities, Stuttgart and Dusseldorf, how quickly do you think they will be forced to move to ban older diesel cars? The legal requirement is very clear. They need to comply in the shortest time possible. That means that they need to act immediately. I'm wondering how clear the ruling is, though, because the Environment Minister, Barbara Hendricks, has said that uh, driving bans can be avoided, and indeed the court has not issued any driving bans. So what's going to force cities to say that these older diesel vehicles mustn't be driven. Minister Hendricks, as an environment minister, should be fighting for clean air in Germany rather than fighting measures against diesel. Driving bans were already mandated in Dusseldorf and Stuttgart. The only uncertain point until today was whether Dusseldorf and Stuttgart had the power to do it. The ruling today made it clear that they can do it. The president of the Car Industry Association, Matthias Wissmann, has said ambitious air quality standards in German cities are also achievable without driving bans. Is he right? The history until today show that it is wrong. These standards were introduced in 2010 and they are still exceeded eight years cities need to comply in the shortest time possible and the evidence is that driving restrictions is the most effective way of achieving compliance. The court ruling today uh, affects two cities. Do, Do you imagine that it will now be replicated across Germany, indeed across Europe? The ruling is likely to have a domino effect. We have other 10 cases pending in Germany and they were all waiting for this ruling from the federal court. So there is no doubt that similar orders will follow in Germany. But it's also likely to set a blueprint for cities all across Europe. Ugo Tadai, lawyer for the environmental group Client Earth. You're with the BBC World Service and live from London, this is NewsHour with me, Tim Franks. We began the programme in the disaster zone of Syria. At the other end of the Middle East comes another blood-soaked mess. Indeed, according to the UN, Yemen is the world's worst humanitarian crisis. As with Syria, a civil war has become the site for outside countries' competing interests. Among them, Houthi rebels, whom the Yemeni government and their Western backers insist are a creature of Iran, and the government itself, which has military backing from a Saudi-led coalition. It was in that context that we brought to you this time yesterday news that the entire top brass of the Saudi military had been dismissed, a typically sweeping move from the young crown prince Mohammed bin Salman and came in the third year of Saudi's involvement in Yemen. 
As it happens, the Yemeni Information Minister, Muammar al-Ariani, is in London at the moment. So, when he came into the News Hour studio, I asked him what he made of those big changes in the Saudi military. That's entirely up to Saudi to solve, and it won't um, make any implications for the Yemenis. But the Saudis have a very important role in terms of the war in Yemen at the moment. Do you not think that it could have an effect on what's happening in your country? The effect might be positive instead of negative. So you think it could be positive, this change? Why? Maybe that way the victory will happen sooner by making some changes and amendments. It's interesting to hear you use the word victory. I mean, the war is going pretty badly, isn't it, at the moment? We are trying to make the victory that the Houthis come to the negotiation table. That's the victory to us. Because we've tried many times to reach an agreement with the Houthis, but every time we're about to reach that peace agreement, the Houthis refuse to sign it and refuse to do it. The Houthis say they are willing to negotiate, but even before we get to that point, we've got your country, I hardly need tell you this, people killed, people starving people disease-ridden. I mean, for you to talk about victory after three years, it, it feels a very long way off. I agree with you that the Yemen that used to be known as the happy Yemen is now not happy at all. And I hope we reach a peaceful agreement. In the last peace talk in Kuwait, we compromised a lot. But Houthi has received a phone call from Iran not to sign the agreement. This is not just what I'm saying. The whole international community witnessed it. Our terms are very simple and basic. To hand over heavy weapons to the state and to become a political party. You've described the Houthis, and we've heard this in the past, as taking orders from Iran. It's also true, though, that they have considerable support in the north. And that is, in large part, that's certainly been increased by the... I mean, let me quote to you from the International Crisis Group, highly respected research institute, which brought out a paper just last month. The Houthis retain considerable popular support in the Northern Highlands, in no small part the result of hatred directed against the Saudi-led coalition's bombing campaign and blockade. That's been a disaster for Yemen, hasn't it? After the killing of the of the allied Ali Abdullah Saleh, many Yemenis are now agreeing with the airstrikes against Houthis. When the government makes any progress and victories in the country, the Houthis target terrors. What victories is the government making? Because I see that southern separatists are making progress in the south. They've got control of Aden. The Houthis are very strong in the north and hold Sana'a. What bit of the country does the government hold? The government before had no stronghold, but now it's controlling 80% of Yemen. 80%? Yes. yes. You can see the You can see the map. Well, when, when was the last time you were in Yemen? I came from Yemen just now. Right. And is the rest of the government in Yemen? Yes. I thought the government was based in Riyadh. 
Yes, they are all in Yemen. The Prime Minister just went to Riyadh to uh, speak with the President and, and he will return back to Yemen. Hearing you speak, Minister, it just feels like a different country to the one that the United Nations talks about, aid agencies talk about, where they say this is the world's worst humanitarian crisis. What you are talking about, the government controlling 80% of the country, we just need some dialogue, we're willing to compromise, it, it sounds more like Luxembourg than Yemen. What's going on? Uh, There are attempts to damage the government's reputation. Uh, I can reassure you as a citizen from Yemen who lives there and goes to work and commutes normally and safely. Schools are open again and they've printed school curriculum and hospitals are open again. Let me ask you a question. How can schools reopen without a government? How can the hospitals work without government and their management? Who will pay their salaries? The words of Muammar al-Ariani, the Yemeni information minister. Nawal al-Mugafi is from the BBC's Arabic service and is reported regularly from Yemen. What does she make of the minister's assertion that his government controls 80% of the country? Well, okay, let me put it this way. So the Houthis are in control, I would say, for of about 30% of the country. Now that 30% has the capital, it's also the most populated part of the country. The 70% that remains is, yani includes a lot of vast desert land, which is unpopulated. And it also includes parts that are under the control of Al-Qaeda, of different militias, of the UAE, and some of which as well by the government. But it's definitely not solely by the government. Right. And in terms of normality, I mean, he was talking about schools being open and the business of government going on and all the rest of it. How much of Yemen is like that? I was just in Yemen over a month ago, and I can assure you that Yemen is in no way, is, you know, there's no way is it normal at the moment. Um, it depends on the area which you're in, but a lot of it is under heavy bombardment. It's under shelling by both sides. Um, in the north, few schools are operating, few hospitals are operating. In the south, it's a similar picture. When I was there, schools were closed altogether because of the clashes. I think the whole country is suffering. As for the government, I mean, I think Yemen is probably the only country in the world that's in conflict where the civilians are trapped within the state and the government has fled for refuge outside the state. Well, except he Um, insisted that the government was in place. The government is based in Riyadh. The president hasn't come into the country for years now, unless for very brief visits, sometimes for only a day at a time. His... um, ministers, few of them come in and out of the country, but they certainly can't roam around within the city uh, because it's incredibly dangerous for them, even in Aden, which they are control of part of it. But they are based in Riyadh. I was actually shocked to hear that. And in terms of this uh, prospect of talks, uh, the minister kept on saying that, you know, they're, they're open to talks with the Houthis. All they want is for them to come to the negotiating table. Where are we with negotiations? Actually, you know, the one thing that he did say um, about the Kuwait talks, I covered all three rounds of peace talks on Yemen. And it's true that when they were during the peace talks, the Houthis had no intention of actually keeping to any of the promises they made during the peace talks. And that's because they have the upper hand in the conflict. And the longer this conflict lasts, like you suggested correctly, the stronger they become because the more resentment there is towards the government and towards the Saudis. And so the more support they get on the ground. And so they don't have intentions to come around the negotiations tables.
The BBC's Noel Al-Magafi. Around the world, the issue of violence against women and sexual harassment is uh, receiving attention after high-profile cases of abuse have been exposed from Hollywood to politics to the aid sector. Cuba, like much of Latin America, has a reputation for keeping silent with this type of social problem. Now, activists are trying to tackle the deep-set culture of machismo and, in particular, domestic violence. Will Grant reports from Havana. Cubans adore their soap operas. Tales of love, betrayal and passions running high captivate audiences across the island as families settle down together in front of the TV for the next instalment of the latest must-see series. But one, called Breaking the Silence, is a soap with a difference. Now in its second season, Breaking the Silence tries to educate as well as entertain, using storylines based on real testimonies of abuse. The show depicts moments of physical and psychological violence against women and children as part of a wider information campaign, explains Dr Ada Alfonso, a psychiatrist at the government's sexual health institute, Senesex. Behind all the creative production process, they are also receiving very important advice from researchers into issues of violence. I think that has lent the series a degree of legitimacy and credibility to the point that the audience is thinking, this could be my neighbourhood happening to someone I know. In that sense, it was real, not fiction. It's not always easy to make your voice heard on the communist-run island. Very few lobby groups exist, protests are all but banned, and a culture of silence prevails, especially on sensitive topics like domestic violence. It is still largely kept behind closed doors, suffered in silence and for couples to resolve on their own, not for neighbours or the authorities to meddle in, or so the thinking has traditionally gone. This is the corner of Boyeros and Carlos Tercero, a very busy junction in Havana. And I'm looking at a billboard that in large letters just says, Eres Mas, you are more. And then there's a picture of a woman whose face has been blocked by a pair of very clearly male arms. Certainly a lot of people see this billboard when they drive or walk past it every day but I wonder how many of them take in what it actually means. Yes, I know that it's about violence against women. I've seen the campaign on the television. It's about abuse and that we don't have to put up with being abused. There's a telephone helpline. I don't know the number off by heart, but they put it on television often so you can find it easily. I was just lying down in the the floor without being able to defend myself. Meanwhile, he was just beating me in my face, you know, very hard. One woman who knows she is more, more than a gender stereotype, more than just the label victim, is Lynette Lorez. She was trapped in a volatile relationship which eventually turned violent. I remember that I, I just asked, but why? Why are you doing that? Why? I don't know how many minutes it lasted, but in my experience it was like endless. When he finished, I suddenly, you know, ran to the kitchen. My face was very swollen because he beat me so hard that broke my my lips inside. 
Lynette Lorez, survivor of domestic violence in Cuba, ending that report from Will Grant. And uh, if you head to our Facebook page, uh, you can see a video facing, uh, featuring Lynette and the campaign against domestic violence in Cuba. A reminder of our top story today, and that is a temporary ceasefire in a suburb of the Syrian capital Damascus has failed to hold. More, uh, we got more details from our Middle East correspondent in Beirut, Martin Patience. The Syrian government carried out airstrikes. We saw footage of that. There was also an allegation from the Syrian government that rebels fired mortars. What it graphically illustrates is the complete lack of trust in Syria between all the sides involved. It's incredibly difficult to piece together a ceasefire, even for five hours. One other headline from the BBC Newsroom, President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has lost his access to top-secret intelligence briefings. This is NewsHour from the BBC. I'm Tim Franks. What's the best way to deal with religious radicalisation? It's a question which has troubled governments across the Western world and one which has particular resonance in France. The 2015 attacks on the area around the Bataclan concert hall led to a state of emergency which remained in place until November last year, two years after the attacks took place. Earlier this week, France's Interior Minister Gérard Collomb revealed that France's security forces had foiled two potential attacks so far just this year. So the French government is trying something new to prevent radicalisation from taking place at all. From Paris, Lucy Williamson. Reaching those at risk of radicalisation hasn't been easy for France. This government video, called You Always Have a Choice, is set in a run-down city suburb and shows a character facing a series of choices, each of which takes him down the path to radicalisation. At the end of the video, a run of bad choices leads to the character being arrested just as he's about to stage an attack. This video is the kind of tool the French government is planning more of, along with new support programmes rooted in the community and segregation of radicalised inmates in prison. Yusuf Bada is a spokesman for the Justice Ministry. Each detainee will get an individual treatment, with one-on-one meetings with caseworkers and chaplains. Of course, the radicalised detainees will cross paths and meet, but that's not the point. We will be working with them, talking to them, challenging their contradictions. That's the real work we'll be doing. Marie was radicalised in prison and says the isolation of being incarcerated made her an easy target. She was not religious, she says, but the violent group she ended up in used rape to pressure her into observing the rules and traditions of Islam. We've changed her name and voice to protect her. I was made to go along with the religion and encouraged to commit horrible and atrocious things. It was about terrorising and frightening people. You have to stay in silence. It's like playing cat and mouse. The mouse is in a very small box, and the cat is ready to pounce at any time. You know that if you don't go along with them, there will be sanctions. The government's approach to tackling radicalisation has been heavily criticised in the past few years. One high-profile rehabilitation centre was nicknamed Jihad Academy. 
Senator Esther Benbassa is the author of a parliamentary report on de-radicalisation programmes in France. We spent 100 million euros in three years and the government gave the money to tons and tons of associations. Everybody opened an association and they were not experts. And in France, the, the problem was all this work was done without evaluation. Bonjour. Voilà, je vous apporte votre café, un peu de réconfort. The new plan is inspired by a handful of successful pilot programs, like this one in Mulhouse. Jean-Claude Keller is a supervisor there and says the difference is down to an intensive individual approach. We're in touch with participants several times a week. I've been in touch with some of them at 5 a.m. or midnight on a Saturday evening. We take a global approach. We also address the social problems of our participants. They've led a chaotic and disorganized life and are looking for something. Why are they radicalized? Because they can't find the answers to their difficulties and problems. We don't try to change their beliefs. And we work on respecting the boundaries that should not be crossed in the French Republic. Recent military success against jihadist groups in Iraq and Syria and the return of those fighters to France has turned the spotlight more intensely on radical networks at home. President Macron has set out not just to prevent violence, but to rebuild France's sense of national identity. That will mean discussing the role of radical ideas and religion in French society, and that's a far more divisive place to go. The BBC's Lucy Williamson with that report. I can say with some feeling that it is jolly cold in Europe at the moment, not just in this corner of London, but in some parts of southern Europe where they haven't seen such snow for decades. But while it may be unusually cold across much of Europe, it's unusually warm up in the Arctic. Why? Catherine Hayhoe is director of the Climate Science Centre at Texas Tech University. What is happening is record warmth in the Arctic has basically opened the freezer door. And so all of the the cold air from the Arctic is flooding down through northern Europe. And in fact, last week, the vast majority of Europe, except for southern Spain and Italy, was actually colder than northern Greenland. That's extraordinary. Is, is this just one of those things or are people such as you worried that it's a, a trend? Yes and yes. Warm temperature outbreaks in the Arctic are not unknown. They typically happen about once every 10 years, but they have been happening much more frequently in recent years and they're getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And um, it may seem like a banal question, but I'll risk it anyway. Um, How uh, worrying is that as far as the Arctic is concerned? One of the main concerns we have is the impact that this will have on the thick, multi-year sea ice. So there's a great deal of thin sea ice that melts and reforms from year to year, but the thick ice is what is increasingly at risk as the Arctic warms. And we are concerned that one of the areas that typically has the oldest and thickest ice north of Greenland is one of the warmest places during this remarkable record-breaking heat wave. Given that, is there a chance that once that process begins, it's more likely to be replicated in the years to come? 
Yes, it seems as if every subsequent heat wave that we are getting in the Arctic is warmer and breaks more records than the one before. Now, of course, one event does not prove global warming. Similarly, one cold outbreak does not disprove it. But when we look at years and decades worth of records, we know that the Arctic is warming more than twice as fast as the rest of the world. And we are seeing increased risk of these winter heat waves, if you can even imagine such a thing in the Arctic. And uh, similarly, are you also suggesting that we may see this sort of flipping of of the weather so that northern Europe, well, the whole of Europe, gets Mm -hmm. these increasingly cold snaps? We see that the polar vortex, which typically seals the Arctic off in winter, the polar vortex has been weakening in recent years. And that is what is allowing the refrigerator door, so to speak, to open and all of this cold air to pour down into more southern latitudes where we are not used to it. Catherine Hayhoe, Director of the Climate Science Centre at Texas Tech University, and she brings this edition of NewsHour to a close. From all of us here before the refrigerator door that is London, thank you very much for your company. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.